1: Miss the show, no worries. We've got you covered on Point and on the podcast. We talked to award-winning investigative journalist, Cheryl Atkinson, about why she left the business at the height of her career and her latest book called Slanted, how the news media taught us to love censorship and hate journalism. We'll talk about journalism and how to win back trust. We also talk about the accused in the St. Mike's who is now on trial and the victim in this case, the alleged victim, what he must be going through as he has to relive the horror of that day for the world to see, that and more coming up. So let's get talking.
0: What's your point? You just don't ever get Am I getting through to you? That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough.
2: Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Listening.
1: The UK was the first country in the world to pre-order supplies of this Pfizer vaccine, securing 40 million doses. Through our winter plan, the NHS has been preparing for the biggest programme of mass vaccination in the history of the UK, and that's going to begin next week. And in line with the
0: advice of the Independent Joint Committee on Vaccination and
1: Immunisation, the first phase will include care home residents, health and care staff, the elderly and those who are clinically extremely vulnerable. UK will be the first country to roll up its sleeves to a vaccine while a conservative may fuel the anti-vaxxers with fear. Alex Pearson with you on this Wednesday, I almost said November, December the 2nd. And today is a very good news day, not necessarily for us, but for For uh, a major ally of ours, which is going to start getting the journey to freedom in a matter of days. So as you've been hearing, you know, the UK starts to deliver the Pfizer vaccine, which it has 20 million doses of um, any day now. And they've also got the Oxford uh, AstraZeneca vaccine that also is coming out soon. So they're not just at the starting line. They are in the starting blocks And that's good news for Boris Johnson, who desperately needed this because they've got the highest death toll in Europe and their economy is uh, circling the drain. So, yeah, great news and uh, an ally of ours, which gives us all a lot of hope. And then, of course, I see stupid news, uh, fake news, with news that Conservative MP Derek Sloan has sponsored a petition that he didn't write and admits he hasn't even read. uh, But it does promote anti vaxxer stuff. Quote, COVID-19 vaccine is effectively human experimentation and questions the safety of the vaccines being developed. And MPs sponsor petitions all the time. And... You know, they've got the constituents, constituents will come with them with all sorts of concern. Apparently he has been inundated with vaccine concerns and they can be rather wonky. Uh, we pulled one up. The uh, Liberals back in May sponsored a petition, a petition that stated uh, cell towers pose danger to children. But I mean, the last thing we re- need right now as we are into this second wave, as we are nearing um, you know, vaccines is rhetoric. Because it just needlessly scares people and it feeds into the anti-vax crowd. And you can spare me your emails. I know you'll send them anyway. I'm a vaccine believer. I'm going to be getting one. I just am. So we're good. Um, and we need this vaccine. We need people to take it. And unless you've got proof to back up all these claims that we hear about and we still have never heard claims that are backed up, it just does, it doesn't speak for any conservative I know. And even if Sloan didn't write it, it still gives the Trudeau government fuel for this narrative that, uh, you know, conservatives push dangerous conspiracies, which this petition looks like, you know, and it also takes the wind out of O'Toole's very legitimate challenge, which keeps coming up at question period, as it did today, you know, for Trudeau to show us proof when the vaccine's coming.
3: If the Prime Minister thinks
1: we're all in this together, why does he refuse to publish a plan so that we can all be in this together? There you go. Um, And tonight, uh, just actually a few minutes ago, O'Toole's office issued a statement saying that no vaccine's mandatory. And um, he goes on talking about the importance of uh, the vaccine as a public health tool. And it goes on from there. He clearly supports vaccines. But again... It's the optics, and then you get a guy like Darren Sloan, who's a bit of a fire rod, a lightning rod, and it gives the Liberals a new attack. Um, You know, when there are actually very real questions that this government should be answering and just refuse to when it comes to vaccine delivery. But interestingly, when I heard um, Boris Johnson say that the UK was the first to sign the Pfizer deal, I looked and I thought, well, gee, when did they sign it? Well, they signed it back at the beginning of July the Trudeau government didn't secure deals until late August. So where does that leave us? Because a whole bunch of countries between there were also rushing to order vaccines. So again, we don't know where we're in the queue. There's all sorts of like, Moderna says we're fifth in line. I don't know. There's all these stories. But again, until the Trudeau government tells us we're fifth in line, sixth in line, whatever, just tell us. We just don't know. But Sam Cooper has one hell of an explanation tonight. And, of course, uh, Scooper Cooper, as you can find him on Twitter, is one of our most, I think, the country's most important investigative journalists who reveals that a deal with the Trudeau government, which they signed, uh, was with a Chinese company called CanSino. CanSino. And it fell apart in August because CSIS discovered that the company was part of a Chinese government program that was trying to entice Canadian educated scientists to I don't know, send them research and trade secrets. And according to CSIS, Cansino's Canadian-educated scientists were likely potential assets by the Chinese Communist Party information collection network. I mean, we know that the Chinese do this. We know that they will steal secrets. They, they try to infiltrate themselves into our systems. We know this. And all these red flags are worn, are, are, are waving, and no one picked up on it, certainly not this government, until August. And all of a sudden, the deal got canceled because, what do you know, China refused to send us the vaccines that they promised that we made a deal with them with for testing. And that's when the whole deal fell apart. And then when the Trudeau government rushed into a number of these deals. And basically, they can talk about the the largeness of their portfolio. They opened the vault and had to spend hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars on different vaccines, billions of dollars on vaccines. Because, A, they were late, so maybe they had to not just buy the vaccine, but maybe say, hey, for an extra billion, can we get them two weeks early or whatever? I don't know what negotiations went on behind the scenes. But again, we bought them in late August after this particular deal with China fell through. That's all we know, and that was a big issue again in question period. So we wait, and I suspect that we're going to be fed just enough information daily to make it look like stuff's happening. You know, Health Canada is expected to approve this in just a matter of days. So that'll buy them time. And I suspect through January, we're just going to see dribs and drabs of vaccines aro- arriving. Okay, it'll look like something's happening. But of course, once this thing's approved, there is no reason, as Canada uh, Health Canada has said, that they can't be shipped. So I think if they don't get shipped, that answers your question. We don't get them until we get them. But everyone else, UK, America, they're already shipping these things. That's because they ordered early and were first in line. So we'll talk about this Uh, growing pressure on Doug Ford to open up small businesses and a number of these businesses that we've been talking about throughout the day. uh, We're talking the Bay roots, Ikea, I mean, even Canadian tire, which is open for business right now. They all wrote this letter to Ford begging him, you gotta open up, even if it's a reduced capacity so that they have a chance to survive. And the premier today pretty much gave them a hard no.
0: I'll do anything I can to to help them. Um, as much as I'd love to say, yes, people have this misunderstanding. I can just go out there and, and change everything. Uh, yeah, well, ultimately, I, I guess the cabinet can or, or I can. But, man, I, can, I can't do that. I have to follow the, the advice of the chief medical officer.
1: hmm Well, I think you can override them. I mean, I think this is a really big mistake. I really do. And I know Ford is pro-business, but I do really think that this is a big mistake because we don't have any accurate testing Um, So, hey, why why do we trust the medical officer? We don't have accurate tracing. We know this. And Anthony Fury writes in The Sun, you know, the retail sector has only been directly linked to 106 cases out of 116,000 in Ontario since last March. And that includes retail employees um, who got infected at work. So the numbers don't justify the hardship and destruction that our small businesses face. And again, I think there is a way to open them very, uh, you know, limited so that they have a chance to make you know, money in, in this crucial, crucial time. You know, it's just, it's crazy to me. Why don't you shut the Costco's and the Home Depot's for the next few weeks, let the small guys open up and then open the Costco after that all important Christmas time shopping, balance it out a little bit. But these businesses without this Christmas shopping time are going to be eviscerated. And it's just, until we see it, you know, like the Bay gone and all these companies gone, you won't, you'll go, oh, wow, gee, yeah, maybe we should have opened them. But I do think this is going to become a real growing problem for the premier, who's going to be under a lot of pressure to answer for this. Good to have you here on this busy Wednesday. And uh, my next guest has won five Emmys. A few RTND awards. She was a main investigative correspondent for CBS and their Washington Bureau and also, of course, anchored their evening news. So when it comes to being a reporter in media, we're talking big leagues. And at the top of her game, 21 years into the business, she decided to walk away because she felt she was being stopped from reporting on real controversies involving the Obama administration, which would include Benghazi. Now, Cheryl Atkinson is host of Full Measure with Cheryl Atkinson and has also authored several books, including her latest, which is called Slanted, which dives into how the news media taught us to love censorship and hate journalism. Cheryl Atkinson joins us now. Thank you so much. I've been hoping to get you on, and I'm so glad to have you. Delighted to be here. Thank you. And we'll dive into your newest book, Slanted, in just, uh, you know, after the the second part of the break. But for context, I want to be able to kind of lay out all your accomplishment and and, uh, your investigative work. But if I actually did that, I'd have absolutely no time to talk to you because you've got a very lengthy (laughs) resume. But you were part of the mainstream. I mean, you were in the trenches for decades. In fact, it was your reporting on Bosnia that would force Hillary Clinton uh, when she had that account of how she dodged sniper fire because it was you who was there to say, yeah, by the way, no bullets were dodged because they weren't fired. And and of course, she had to retract that. So I have to think, you know, when you walk away from that kind of career, that had to have been pretty hard.
4: It was. I mean, it was a career that I had loved. I didn't know that I'd be able to bounce back and get hired to do an independent program. So I thought I was leaving the business, leaving mid-contract, just walking away in 2014. And, you know, that shows you how hard it was to walk away. That shows you how bad things were even though that year was arguably one of my best years in terms of recognition from my peers. I think I had five Emmy nominations and two awards and did some very important work. But what people don't know is I think some of the most important investigating I did was left, as they say, on the cutting room floor, and it became increasingly heartbreaking, and it felt Mm -hmm. unethical, quite frankly, to have to have these stories either changed or censored or not airing when so much heart and soul went into them on the part of people exposing wrongdoing that had agreed
1: to talk, and
4: it just was untenable, but I saw it wasn't just cBS the whole industry was heading in that direction, and I knew it
1: yeah, I mean it's pretty heartbreaking because, as a reporter, I mean this is what you strive for to get to those kind of upper echelon um you know stages in your career where you're known you're respected um, at that point in your career as a reporter, you kind of would or should have had the ability to go to your managing editor and say, here's my story. And because they trust you, they would say, yeah, of course, we're going with it. And, you know, when you can't get a story about Benghazi uh, into the news or or legitimate stories about the administration of the day, which back then was the Obama administration, that speaks volumes. And it's not just that, because most of my reporting has always been not about
4: issues that touch on politics, but there were issues that had to do with corporate interests, whether it's Boeing or pharmaceutical industry. These also were narrowed and slanted and censored in my view. And it came to be that there were more stories they didn't want than stories they did want on really important topics. And it just started to look like this was not the place for me to be. And I was in a position after all those years where I could walk away from. It wasn't pleasant, wasn't easy, but I was able to do it. So
1: that's what I decided to do. It was uh, put into your book called Stonewalled. It was described as amicable, um, you know, but but when you read through the book, you know, which is called One Reporter's Fight for Truth Against the Forces of Obstruction, Intimidation, and Harassment in Obama's Washington, I mean, y- you lay it out there that you believe there was a liberal bias uh, preventing actual news from being reported.
4: Yes, I mean, I never termed it that way, and liberal bias was never discussed in my departure conversations it was it's a bigger issue yes there was liberal bias but i would just say what appears to be liberal bias because they didn't want certain stories that impacted the obama administration true that was there but i think it was more about power and corporations and even if republicans and were certain connected in certain ways to corporations and political things those didn't make it either it just mm-hmm. started to look like everything that took on any interest that was off the narrative. That's the key here. That was not what some powerful entity wanted to have reported. They didn't want to report it, these newer managers. After many years of having great managers that didn't mind going up against all of this, that all changed in those
1: last couple of years. Do you believe that this is a big part of why there is such a distrust in in how news is is consumed? I mean, you've gone as far as creating a media bias chart. You list networks you feel uh, have a bias. And and I have to think you've gotten a lot of blowback for the positions you take now. I don't hear it firsthand.
4: Now, of course, as I expect, and it proves the point, you have these quasi-news outlets and the ones that partner with news organizations that do a lot of propaganda I'm talking about. You know, Mother Jones and Politico Mm. and Salon and those, they all seem to have like the same stories and they target the same people. I expect that. And that's fine. And certain ones of the media reporters. And again, it seems to prove the point, but not the blowback. You know, that's the impression people want you to have. That's sort of a narrative in of itself. But I know that many people in my industry and my colleagues feel the same way. I was far from the only one complaining about this at CBS. Maybe I was one of the most impacted because I do investigative reporting. But this was common. And in fact, when I went in to quit at CBS and they convinced me to stay a little longer the first time I tried to quit, I was told by management that, yes, we know you're not the first person. We're getting a lot of complaints from a lot of vets. We understand, you know, we have a lot of problems here. This is going on industry-wide. And that's why I think so many insiders spoke to me for the book. I've talked to former executives who ran news divisions at CNN and NBC, MSNBC, who worked at the New York Times. So they agree with the things that we're saying. You just don't hear those views widely represented when you go on social media or you
1: see news reports because that's off the narrative. Yeah, and that's all in your new book, Slanted. I'm going to get into that in just a couple of minutes. Before I get to there, though, uh, I mean – You went through a lot uh, during those years, and I have to think uh, a lot of this probably left you sleepless at night because you allege that the Obama administration went as far as to spy on you, which would, you know, that's something Trump has also accused that administration of doing, but you as a reporter, would you have been the only one?
4: I absolutely wasn't, and I think that's the point. I know that it's not important because it happened to me, but one of the whistleblowers who's admitted to being part of one of the spy operations in the federal government against me in my lawsuit that's still going on. He says they did this to thousands of people. And we know that these operations went after a lot of different journalists. We know uh, James Rosen was spied on when he was at Fox. We know there were inappropriate confiscation of records of associated press reporters. So, yeah, I was far from alone. And this is why I've always insisted it was really important, because we're talking back in 2011, 2012, And I knew if this weren't addressed, and it wasn't, Mm -hmm. that we could expect more of the same. Look what happened in 2016. Why would any of this change if these people who persist, by the way, from administration to administration, if they're never held to account and the Justice Department today is defending the guilty agents in my case, then why is that ever going to change?
1: Yeah, it it um, it portrays a very, um, uh, well, it's damaging, not just uh, to journalism itself, but it erodes democracy. And it's a big threat, I think, to democracy. You write about that, of course. I mean, you've got the other book. I don't know where you find time to write these books. But the other book you've written also is The Smear, How Shady Political Operatives and Fake News Control, What You See, What You Think, and How You Vote. Um, all of these things, I think, are a real detriment to democracies that we both in both countries share and need. Need to be confronted. But I'm going to take a quick break here because when I come back, I want to talk to you about the new book, which dives into how you feel the news media has taught us to love censorship and hate journalism, which again, further erodes where we are uh, in the state of media today. We're talking to Cheryl Atkinson. She'll join us right after this break to continue what I think everyone should understand as we try to win back trust in, uh, in media, which has eroded over the last few years. I'm Alex Pearson. Stay with us. We'll be back after this break on Point on Global News Radio. All right, great to have you here. We are talking to Cheryl Atkinson, American journalist who has a new book out called Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. And um, for almost two decades, Cheryl, I was a journalist and I left. Now I offer opinion. But I think my background on it helps me to form my opinions. But I'm very open where I am. Uh, But there's a very big difference in journalism and editorialism. But those lines today are so blurred that, you know, When you turn on a CNN or a Fox or really, I think, any of any broadcaster today, certainly in the U.S., it's very difficult to figure out who's telling the news and who's giving you an opinion. Well, this is one of the most shocking trends,
4: and it was already happening to some degree. It's never as though all news was pure and void of opinions, but we at least tried overall to maintain a semblance that there was a firewall Mm -hmm. and that we were being neutral And all of that was thrown out the window quite quickly in 2016, led, quite frankly, by the New York Times. And, you know, from being in journalism that everybody copies the New York Times once they do something. And, you know, when I see New York Times front page stories, these are supposed to be hard news stories, lead with reporters saying things such as President Trump was alone in his office stewing after a phone call, thinking about what he should have done differently. And I'm thinking, This is like a novel, an omniscient viewpoint of a novel, things you can't possibly know, not attributed to anybody, just your random thoughts about what you're claiming was inside the mind of somebody. This is crazy. And then there's also, as you know, the whole tact of not just doing that kind of writing, but the writing that is designed to convince people to feel a certain way and tell them what's true and what's not, even when it's a matter of dispute or tell them what opinions they can't believe or hear. This is just out of control, and I think this has really undermined the public's trust in the media and what they see on the news because they know reporters and news outlets have a vested interest in some sort of particular outcome. So even if they're getting the truth sometimes, they don't necessarily believe it because they feel like the thumb is on the scale on the part of the reporters.
1: We, I mean, we have issues here in this country, but it is far more pronounced in the United States. In fact, I wish more people in this country focused on Canadian news than obsessed over American news, because as long as they're f- obsessing over your news, they're not actually paying attention to a lot of things our own country is doing, our own prime minister is doing and getting away with. But where do you blame it? Do you blame it on the 24-7 news cycle, cable news? I mean, where do you uh, focus the blame?
4: I argue, and I think I make a pretty convincing case that This is due to the political and corporate interests understanding and spending the last 20 years figuring out how to get their nose under the tent in news organizations, how to get hired in news organizations. They are us now. There's not any separation anymore. We used to maybe consult them or use them as sources, but now they work in the newsrooms. Mm -hmm. So the mission of journalism is no longer as I see it, and as you probably see it, which is reflecting facts and diverse viewpoints and reporting things that are happening, it's now to put forth a certain narrative and convince people to think a certain way on behalf of some interest. And if you view everything in that lens, it explains why nobody gets in trouble, it seems like most of the time. When they report something that's completely false and proven to be wrong, and yet they live to see another day and do the same thing the next day, it's because mission's accomplished. They got the narrative out. Even if it was wrong, they got the point across. And that's, that's sadly where
1: we are today. I mean, I, I'm, I'm very glad in this company that we have some of the best investigative reporters in this country, but it is so hard and rare uh, to find anymore because newsrooms can't invest in this kind of journalism anymore. It's expensive. It takes a long time to do and the cycle of news needs to be fed. It's like this giant monster, but somewhere along the way, um, you know, politicians and advisors, to your point, they have, pers- they have perfected spin into finely tuned talking points, which, you know, if you repeat them enough, they become a narrative, they become the truth. Um, and sure, Trump gets blamed. But this has been going on now for a while. Oh, it has been. I mean, this isn't something
4: that's new. I just think it accelerated with the entrance of Trump on the political stage, the press. And I think they were driven by these special interests, both Democrats and Republicans who Mm. didn't like Trump coming outside the money structure where they can get favors and they can make certain laws. Certain laws are passed and not passed and regulations and so on. Trump came to upend that. Those who influenced the media had to be sure to make that look controversial and try to stop him. And so in 2016, everything leapt very quickly forward into this Kind of oblivion that we have today, after the slow burn of the previous fifteen years or so,
1: and and you're not alone in in, in the way you think because you speak uh, with a lot of former and even current writers, uh, news execs, producers who have come forward to talk about their concerns and and essentially how censorship somehow um, and certainly we see it with a lot of younger uh, people they just accept it they, they, you know that soft censorship is okay um, and and frankly. It, it is, I think, sh- and should be seen as alarming.
4: This is what frightens me the most, and I think, is one of the most disturbing and important trends. And I argue, you know, when I say in the subtitle how the news media taught us to love censorship and hate journalism, that's what I'm talking about, that these people in 2016 that had largely been able to control the terms of the news saw that we could still get any information we wanted online. That was not good. Donald Trump got elected, even though they told us not to elect him. And how bad he was. So they set about realizing they had to start to figure out how to control online information. And to do that, think of how clever this is. Mm. They knew they couldn't step in right away and say, we're censoring news. We're going to shape what you see. They had to create the appearance of a market for it. They had to convince us to invite them to do their fake fact checks and their curating. This is nothing that had been publicly discussed in any big way prior to September of 2016, when I traced in my last book, there were partisan efforts to start this, to try to control the online information by convincing us somebody needs to do it. And it's been quite successful because, as you said, a lot of people today invite these fake fact checks. Yes, I, I don't want to see information that's not true or more more accurately, I don't want you to see it. I can handle it. I can see it. But it shouldn't be passed around for you to see. And you're inviting these special conflicted interests to have control because they're always going to figure out how to control any access to information that they can. And now they control what you see on Google and Twitter and Facebook. And we're, you know, a lot of us, half of America, probably, I don't know about in your country, but they're saying all the better. I don't want to see bad information. I want them to do this. So that's what I mean by they've taught us to love censorship and hate journalism.
1: But you also refer to the absurdity where, you know, journalism schools are teaching students now about their own personal truth uh, to, to to choose a narrative Um, that matters more than the reality of of the narrative, you know, the partisan bias and and just a gullibility, which is destroying the trade, Um, you know. And I think we see it in in the reporting of things and issues like Black Lives Matter, like COVID-19, like Joe Biden.
4: Well, and that's one of the most upsetting trends is to hear a journalism professor that I quoted in the book write an op-ed after the New York Times decided to Start calling Donald Trump a liar in their headlines, which was quite a decision because we avoided that pejorative term for many reasons and for good reasons I discuss in the book. But once they decided to do that, this was cheered on by one journalism professor who said it was great that we were ending objectivity and neutrality in journalism, which he thought were overrated. (laughs) And I'm thinking, a journalism professor teaching this to journalism students, that objectivity and neutrality are overrated? It's sort of like a doctor telling you, don't worry about diet and exercise. I mean, these are fundamentals. But if you have professors telling them this is unnecessary, they're teaching the opposite to me of what journalism is supposed to be about
1: well yeah we were taught back in the day don't go in with a narrative cuz you are limiting yourself to what the story could be you have to be open minded right. um so that is a complete opposite of what we were taught back in the day and it is it is sad if if you know that is where it's taking us just quickly before i let you go you know cr- journalism is so crucial to democracy you know holding people to account Is there any way to get back to the facts? I mean, how do you retrust gain uh, when you're competing against the noise of of social media?
4: Well, I don't know where we go next or how we get it back. I don't think we're ever going to go back to the news as we once knew it. But I do have some optimism. Whoever you support politically, the Mm -hmm. fact that in this country, Americans were told by pretty much all the news media not to vote for Donald Trump. He was racist, sexist, horrible person. And this was like pervasive and ubiquitous and that far more money was spent by the Biden team, just as far more money was spent by the Hillary Clinton team. And Donald Trump still won. It tells you that tens of millions of Americans are immune to or at least looking with suspicion at these narratives. In other words, they're not listening. And there is a market to speak to those people and smart people are trying to figure out how to develop news and information platforms and sources that are not subject to the deplatforming and the censorship. If you say the wrong thing or you report it back, they don't want you to see. There are really smart people working on this problem. And I think we'll see something come of it in the next four years. I just don't know exactly what it looks like.
1: Me neither. I sure hope you're right, though. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, Cheryl. Thank you. It was fun. The book is called Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism, Cheryl Atkinson has a number of other books, though, if you're interested in taking a read. And you can also watch her on uh, Full Measure with Cheryl Atkinson. And this is not getting a lot of tension, but the uh, trial of the teen accused in the St. Mike's sex assault hazing case is now underway. And of course, it falls under the uh, radar because, like everything, COVID takes up all the oxygen in the room. And the um, accused in this case is appearing on Zoom. And what we've heard is from the alleged victim in this case, where the two-hour statement that the boy gave to police describing two alleged incidents that he describes as initiation um, were played for the court. And it's where he describes what he says happened to him. And it was great. It was reported in great detail by the Toronto Star, and, and I don't begrudge their reporting, um, but we already know what happened, and I think detailing it now just further degrades this poor child who has been, you know, no question, put through hell and back. But what sticks out to me is, you know, the accused in this case is a young offender, so they are not going to um, ever be known. That boy will be able to get on with his life at some point, whereas the victim in this story... He's going to live with this for the rest of his life. And the pain that that boy will suffer, and if you've ever seen a young boy or a young child uh, have to testify in court, it is not easy to watch. It's definitely not easy for them to do, and it can last uh, and 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 really serve up some really devastating impacts. Tamara Cherry is, of course, a longtime crime reporter and has now uh, started up Pickup Communications, and this is a full service uh, public relations firm that really deals with specializing in support for victims and survivors, and Tamara, I mean, we covered courts at the same time, we covered crime at the same time. This is one of those cases, mm-hmm. as a mom, uh, that horrifies me, and I don't know a parent out there who can actually listen to the details of this and not be so absolutely, you know, devastated for what this family, what this young man has been put through. But then, you know, the trial part of it is, uh, it's just as painful. Yeah, you know what, Alex, I totally agree with you. This is one of those cases that I think has irked
3: everybody in Toronto. Um, But the media coverage of it has irked me as well. And not just with this most recent story in the Toronto Star. And I agree with you. I don't begrudge this reporter. I think there's a larger systemic issue in the way that Uh, We report on um, stories involving victims and survivors of traumatic events such as this one. But I remember when this case first happened. I mean, the reason that it was such big news is because this this sexual assault was videotaped and distributed widely uh, across the school. And that videotape ended up in the hands of a reporter and anchor who on live television described what was happening in this video apparently just to verify the details in it. So this poor boy not only had to endure this horrific assault, but had to endure the fact that his classmates, his his peers, perhaps his teachers had seen what happened to him. And not only that, but that members of the media had watched what had happened to him, not to mention everybody involved in the court process, police officers, all of that stuff had watched it. And now to see it, um, you know, said out loud on TV, reported in the newspaper i mean the issue that i have with this news coverage now is that in this case which is the the final case of the prosecution uh the final Mm -hmm. boy who's being prosecuted in this case the issue doesn't seem to be whether or not what happened was a sexual assault if that was the issue i understand why the public would need to know perhaps what exactly happened the issue seems to be whether or not the boy on trial now was present for the sexual assault I don't know why we need to read the details uh, and hear the details over and over again.
1: Yeah, certainly. I mean, in in the court, they they can do that and they they have protections in place uh, for a reason. And that is so that you don't re-victimize, you know, uh, the the alleged victim. Um, But again, this boy is never not going to be a victim because it's Mm -hmm. still passed around online. It is still talked about. There are kids at other schools who know about it, known as that boy with this every single day there will never be justice no matter how much justice is meted out and as you well know the three others have already pleaded guilty they got nothing but a slap on the wrist they didn't even get any kind of suspension from um you know twitter or social media which to me it was such a lost opportunity in this Mm -hmm. case uh but what i don't think a lot of people understand is that certainly when you're talking about young people it's you know the the accused he'll be protected he'll be protected by these laws he'll go on with Mm -hmm. his life this boy, you know, I pray to God that he has a good support system in place mm-hmm. uh, to take him through this and to to, to rebuild his life. Mm-hmm.
3: And, and I don't know what the impact has been on this boy. I haven't spoken to him. I haven't had any contact with him or anybody in his support network. What's I mean, have been so private has been on him yeah. of, of this trial or of the media coverage of this trial. But I want to touch on a point because you did mention that there are protections in place in court to you know protect the identity of the victim, publications ban, bans, that sort of thing. But we, as members of the media, myself being a former member of the media, have responsibilities as well to filter the information that we yeah. see in court and choose what we're going to report. Yeah. Quite often, Alex, as you know, we'd be sitting in court from 9 o'clock in the morning until 5 o'clock at night, and we're filling, uh, you know, a minute and a half on the newscast or four or 500 words in the newspaper. You're not reporting everything you see and hear. You need to figure out what was... The most relevant information that day in determining whether this accused person is guilty or not guilty, and share it with the public to have that tra- that very importantly so transparent court system. Um, what I saw in this media coverage, it didn't seem relevant to whether or not this young, whether or not this boy inflicted this sexual assault, uh, you know, upon the other boy. It was, it just seemed to be voyeuristic, and I imagine. Uh, And again, I'm just assuming here, because I don't know the victim in this case, uh, re-victimizing potentially towards the victim.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, uh, I covered the courts for years, every single day, and and you hear horrifying things, and a lot of it mm-hmm. does not ever get you know heard or seen in the light of day. And I mean, we would talk to the managing editor, what what can go in or take that out, mm-hmm. and we were very cautious at Global about that's too much, it's uh, don't put that in, you know, that's not mm-hmm. needed because you can get really wrapped up in it. So you have to use some discretion in what you release to make sure you get the context of just how bad this was without glorifying it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I certainly think. when when it comes to to a case like this that is so, so delicate, because uh, mm-hmm. it's going to have such lasting implications uh, for the boy and, and the family in this case, that you can be extra careful. Uh, mm-hmm. you and know, and it, you know what?
3: Take, take those horrifying details. Take the... The five, six, seven, eight paragraphs of horrifying details distill them down to a couple sentences. So a lot of times in these, in these awful cases, those horrifying details, you can still get the message across to the public that, that what happened was an awful thing. And I think all parties in this case, defense, Crown, you know, everybody agrees that what happened was was horrible and was sexual assault. The question is who inflicted the sexual assault upon this young boy. We don't need to get into everything that happened to him. He doesn't need to read it in the newspaper, nor, nor do his peers at school need to see what he told police because they already know. They watched the video.
1: Yeah. And look, the system, as you well know, is not built for the victims. It is built for the protection of the accused. And that is, I think, you know, I know lawyers are probably cringing when I say this, but there has to be a better balance because Mm -hmm. what these families and what these victims of all these horrifying crimes, what they go through in that system is so cold. And uh, no matter how much support, which is not much of it really, truly, is not justice for them. There's nothing there for them. It's a daunting, mm-hmm. horrifying system that often can be extraordinarily cruel.
3: Yeah, the, the, I absolutely agree with defense lawyers and and crown attorneys for that matter. That the rights of the accused are are of you know great importance. Of course, uh, we're talking about somebody's freedom. But we do a deplorable job in this country yeah. of providing adequate supports for victims of sur- and survivors of traumatic events. There are so many areas we need to look at. My, my, the area I've been looking at for, you know, the last year now is is how they interact with and are impacted by the media. Um, and that's why I'm talking to you today. But, but you know, we could talk for hours about oh. how victims and survivors are failed in this system. And it's, it's an absolute shame and, and should be shameful, a shame that is felt by
1: politicians Uh, by leaders in our community right across this country. Absolutely, and hopefully it can be changed. I'll happily do that with you. Tamara Cherry, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Alex. Have a great night. That is Tamara Cherry with Pickup Communications. And uh, yes, it is worth changing. That's part of the system. And you can do so without ever uh, impeding on the rights of the accused. All right, good to have you here on this Wednesday. And we have been looking into the issue of long-term care. When it comes to personal support workers, you know, registered nurses and other workers in Ontario's nursing homes, they are among the frontline staff that the government hails as heroes because of all their risks and ongoing work in keeping not just the residents safe from COVID-19 but alive. But according to a recently released study done in collaboration with CUPE and the Ontario Council of Hospital Unions, These heroes are suffering, not just from burnout, but they're exhausted, anxious, and live in fear. In Part 8 of Care Gone Wrong, Inside Ontario's Nursing Home, Global's Lisa Pawlewski explores what a typical shift looks like for a PSW or a registered nurse in a day in the life of a caregiver within a nursing home.
5: I started at 23. I've been there 36 years. And I love what I do. I love my job. I love looking after seniors. But they're taking that spark out of all of us.
2: For a PSW like Sarah, whose identity has been obscured by global news, a typical day at her nursing home in Durham begins at 6 a.m. At her home, each PSW is responsible for 8 to 10 residents, waking them, washing them, getting them ready for meals, helping them eat, and taking documentation on changes to their routine or health. Sarah says the type of residents in her care nowadays require heavier care. Seniors that not only suffer with Alzheimer's and dementia, but have issues walking and getting out of bed.
5: You, you have a lot of behaviors and um, it's um, you just run off your feet uh, daily.
2: The whole time Sarah and her colleagues are wearing personal protective equipment to keep residents and themselves safe. When visitors aren't allowed inside the home, she says residents rely on staff for that human connection.
5: We know everything about them, their likes and dislikes. They they want to know where their families are. Um, we, it's, try, it's hard to explain to some of them, you know, there's a bad disease out there, COVID, and it's so, so
2: hard. And when COVID-19 does get into a home, the worlds of both residents and staff are turned upside down. Another PSW whose Identity Global News has agreed to protect was working nights at a small nursing home when the virus crept into the facility in March. Christina says it started with a few residents showing symptoms like fevers and coughing.
5: Like we knew it was kind of lurking out there. We knew it was, you know, somewhere close, but we never imagined that it would come into our home. Um, we're a very small home in a small community. And this night, just going through, it was like, there's there's something just not okay.
2: It wasn't long before Christina herself tested positive for COVID-19 and was forced to isolate at home, keeping away from her husband and children. While she was recovering from the illness, thankfully only experiencing mild symptoms, Christina says the situation at the nursing home got even worse.
5: I just recall watching like an utter horror um, sitting in my room, uh, like, the way everything was going down at my workplace. And I remember just being like, I mean, I've got to get past there.
2: Eight residents had died while she was off work. When she returned, the deaths kept coming. The coroner wasn't allowed in the home at the time, so Christina and her fellow PSWs had to zip residents into body bags, carting them down the hallway to the front door. More than 30 residents at Christina's home died from COVID 19. Pandemic has taken a heavy toll on the well-being of frontline healthcare workers across the province according to a recently published study entitled Sacrificed Ontario healthcare workers in the time of COVID-19. The study was done in partnership with CUPE and the Ontario Council of Hospital Unions and interviewed 10 different workers, also polling 3,000 of the union's members. It found that more than 90% of care home workers feel abandoned by the provincial government. Dr. James Brophy, one of the lead authors, says they had predicted a lack of PPE would be among the concerns expressed by the workers, but they had no idea how much stress and anxiety those workers were Experiencing as well,
0: we have a, a workforce that has borne a very high proportion of risk in terms of the pandemic. You know, something in the area of twenty percent of the cases are among healthcare workers, and yet their own protection has been has been negligible.
2: Another lead author, Dr. Margaret Keith, says morale among PSWs, nurses and other frontline workers is at an all-time low because there's simply not enough staff. We have people who are are burning
3: out. We have a situation that is is probably getting worse rather than better even though we're now, you know, more aware of what the conditions are like in long-term care the the staffing numbers are going down partly because of burnout partly
2: because you know people are are just quitting those jobs it's not an unfamiliar story for Doris Grinspun ceo of the registered nurses association of ontario she says those working in nursing homes are run off their feet drained sometimes not even sure whether someone will show up to replace them at the end of their shift they want and they do the utmost to provide quality care safe
0: care and they don't feel they have the human resources capacity
2: to do so. Grinspan has heard horror stories from countless nurses who are suffering emotional trauma from the devastation caused by COVID-19. I
0: have had nurses saying to me directly, it was, you could smell the death in the hallway. And those things no human being should go through as a resident no family should go through that knowing that that was the case and no staff should go through that
2: throughout the qp study and in speaking with sarah and christina a common theme emerged nursing home workers are afraid of speaking up about their situation for fear of retribution michael hurley president of the ontario council of hospital unions says about a third of those recruited for the study dropped out when they found out workers in previous investigations were fired for speaking out.
0: Two have been fired. One changed her name legally so she could continue to work as a personal support worker. I tell you that because this is um, an environment where there's a, a heavy use of coercion and discipline to maintain order.
2: Dr. Brophy says that environment of coercion and discipline becomes more concerning when considering it's a workforce made up primarily of women, especially racialized women.
0: You cannot help but see the parallels of oppression and violence against women in our society being played out in these institutions. And the fact that they fear speaking about this is so parallel to how you know, sexual harassment and domestic violence has been handled where you know the victims are blamed for what's going on.
2: Upon speaking with the workers for the study, Dr. Keith says it's clear that there needs to be more protection for those who speak out about poor conditions in long-term care, which is not a new problem. This pandemic has certainly shed light on what's been
3: going on in the long-term care facilities. If the healthcare workers had been allowed to speak about these issues, You know, maybe we would have known about all of this a little sooner and maybe we wouldn't have ended up with these huge outbreaks causing so
2: much suffering and death in long-term care. Grinspun and the RNAO have been trying to highlight those issues for years. She's calling on Premier Doug Ford and other senior government officials to join a nurse or PSW for a 12-hour shift.
0: But not to go for a photo op and not to go to a place that doesn't have COVID. Go to a place that has COVID. Go all all geared up and stay for an entire shift and be with
2: those nurses and PSWs. That's a challenge that Christina is on board with and is volunteering to show the premier exactly what a shift in a nursing home is like.
5: I'll dedicate 12 hours of time to walk you through any home of your choice. I I challenge him to do that. I will be that person. I will take him through and get his hand dirty and let him see the reality of it.
2: The province has said it hopes to tackle the staffing issue in long-term care by eventually hiring tens of thousands of PSWs and up the average time of care for each resident to four hours a day from the current two and three quarters, but that likely won't happen until 2024 or 2025. Sarah and Christina both say the situation can't wait another four or five years.
5: What about 2021 and 22 and 23? You know, like... We're in a crisis here. Their 24-25 plan um, is just not sufficient in my eyes. Like, I mean, this needs to be done today. I mean, it needed to be done 15 years ago.
2: Dr. Brophy, Dr. Keith, and Doris Grinspun echo their words, saying the time to act is now.
0: There are immediate things that could be done if, if, if taking care of our senior citizens and respecting us, the elders in our society was a priority.
3: All of these problems can be fixed. The understaffing can be fixed. We can add staffing right now because right now is when we really need it.
0: The premier said he's committed to the four hours. Show me the money and show me the timelines. And no, it cannot happen in four years.
2: People are dying now. For Global News, I'm Lisa Pulaski.
1: Tomorrow, part nine of Care Gone Wrong, we look inside Ontario's nursing homes asking whether any political parties have a solution for the future and what's that role, if any, of the federal government in fixing the problems of our Ontario long-term care system. We'll get into all of that. You, of course, can join us Monday through Friday live, starting 6.30 sharp here on Point. Alex Pearson, this is Global News Radio.